and welcome to the JGUA Financial Commentary Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Barron, and in this episode, I talk to Jason Nickerson to discuss equity compensation, a little background and considerations for those that are paid this way. But before we begin, a short disclaimer. The contents of this podcast are strictly for informational purposes only and nothing said should be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. Any strategies discussed may not be suitable for the listener specifically, and JGUA encourages consulting with your advisor before implementing any strategies to ensure they meet your individual objectives. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Jason. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to be here. Equity compensation is a little different because not everyone's exposed to this. So I'd like to give a little bit of background before we kind of get into it. Sure, absolutely. Equity compensation is much more common today at all levels of organizations versus 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Historically, it was really reserved for top level executives, not just as a piece of compensation, but also as an incentive and not just an incentive in terms of you do a good job and you, you get like a bonus, but an incentive to stay with the company and work hard and impact the bottom line of the company, right? Because stock price is impacted by financial results. Top level execs that, that companies wanted to retain were granted different types of equity compensation, and it was a way to draw a, a straight line through their hard work right to the bottom line of the company, and the reward was an increased stock price, and therefore the value of the incentive compensation went up. As we've come through the decade, this has really changed substantially where equity comp is being reached down into lower levels of the organization right down into middle management and even even down further through the hierarchy, which has been nice to see, frankly. Employees at all levels of the organization can benefit from strong financial results and, and tie them directly to the value of, of equity. You can probably draw a line to Silicon Valley, frankly, or just startups in general, right, that, that were going public. It was a way to lure you know, big-time execs away from big-time companies and while those startups couldn't really pay cash compensation right right away because they're because they have to retain cash to invest in other employees and other things they could give away ownership of, of the company and therefore when it went public big payday the landscape of equity compensation in terms of intent in terms of who is getting it has really drastically changed now types really have not. So types of equity compensation have pretty much stayed the same over a long period of time. And we've seen this go come and go in waves. You know, historically speaking, it is much, much more distributed to much more of the organization. Well, I'll just kind of let you continue on into it. What are the different types of equity comp? Yeah, so you're you're looking really at two main types of equity compensation, but then there are subsets. You have stock options, and there are two types of stock options, non-qualified stock options and incentive stock options. And we'll come back to, to the differentiation. Then you have restricted stock units. And then even below that, you have employee stock purchase plans and really not even equity compensation, but you're also seeing cash grants, which is kind of being blended in with equity comp. So let's go back. Stock options uh, really have been this uh, long-term what's been used. And the longest term utilization is then incentive stock options. These come with some very favorable tax treatments if they're handled correctly. 
and we're, we're not going to be able to hit every detail, so I'm just providing top-level overview. But if you get an incentive stock option, you want to be very, very careful because you could exercise or sell and create yourself a disqualifying event, therefore eliminating some of the tax benefit with an incentive stock option. To give you a little more background on incentive stock options, there's a limitation on how much in value can be granted to any one employee in any one year. If anyone's wondering how come I got some incentive stock options and some non-qualified stock options, there's probably a reason behind that because there is a limitation on how many incentive stock options in terms of value you can get. Real quick in summary though, incentive stock options, when you exercise those, and if you just exercise and hold the shares, you are not looking at any taxable compensation from that. Versus non-qualified stock options, the moment at which you exercise that stock option, whether you hold or sell, you have a taxable event. Stock options in general, when you're granted stock options, no tax, but then depending on type, incentive stock option when exercised, no tax. If you held the shares and non-qualified, you are taxed. And the, the tax treatment is a little bit different. Non-qualified stock options, you're taxed at ordinary rates, your, your marginal tax rate. And with incentive stock options, it really just depends on what you do next. Okay, so if you hold the shares resulting from an incentive stock option for more than 12 months, you'll pay long-term capital gains tax on the gain. If you hold it less, this is what's called a disqualifying event, it means you don't get that favorable long-term tax treatment, and you're going to pay your ordinary marginal rate on the gain on those. There's a, there's a few more details when it comes to that, like holding periods. We talked about the 12 months, but there's even another one when it comes to a couple of these programs like stock options and even employee stock purchase plans where you have to hold the option two years from the date of grant even. And that's something that people generally don't know, but it's been eliminated by how companies treat these stock option grants in terms of the vesting period, right? So you might get a grant today, but you may have a couple of different vesting programs. One might be a three-year cliff. Something might be like a five-year graduated vesting or something like that. So companies have, by their vesting periods, have really benefited employees from really worrying about, I have to hold the stock option for at least two years. And that's quick, broad brush. If you find yourself with a question in that arena, you really need to consult a tax advisor because there are more details below that. And that's one of the primary types that people are seeing. There used to be another tax issue when it comes to incentive stock options and how they impact the alternative minimum tax. But tax law changes over the last few years have really eliminated the AMT for most people doesn't mean it's gone. So again, that's another consultation with the tax advisor on what's going to happen if I have incentive stock options and make sure you treat them right because you can really save a bunch of taxes if you handle those correctly. Now compare that, compare the stock option to the restricted stock. A stock option is a grant with the right to purchase shares at a stated price. And when it comes to employer granted options versus market traded options like calls and puts, these have a very long expiration, usually 10 years. So that's the right to buy the stock at a stated price for a decade, which is really nice because you could sit on it for eight, nine years and really watch the value grow and not incur any tax implications, or you can exercise it uh, as soon as it's vested to you. Restricted stock are really a grant of shares and you're just sitting and waiting for them to vest to you. You have to do really nothing else. Now, again, it's similar to stock options that there's no taxable event when you grant uh, or when you receive a grant of restricted shares, but when they vest to you, you're going to get a chunk of shares and that's the taxable event. It's the value of those shares on the date of vesting. 
And companies handle these things different ways, but most of them will withhold shares to cover tax withholdings you know, when those vest or even on the exercise of options, sometimes they withhold some shares, non-qualified stock options to cover the withholding tax. But again, another disclaimer, companies typically have a structured rate at which they're going to withhold federal and state if applicable and FICA and Medicare. The FICA and Medicare is taken care of, but you really need to consult an, a tax advisor because the withholding rate may not be enough for you. And all of a sudden you end up with one or two events when you file your return, a large balance due that you weren't you know, understanding that that was going to happen or penalties because you didn't pay taxes in a timely fashion. Those are really the main types. Like I, I had mentioned before, there's a couple of additional types. One is considered equity compensation and that's employee stock purchase plan. The other we won't dive much into, it's cash grants, and that works similar to restricted stock grants in that it's just a vesting of cash, and it's just sort of like a bonus. Employer stock purchase plans. This is one, as I said, the landscape has changed in terms of what has been happening over the years, what is being granted or what's being offered versus not. And employee stock purchase plans are ones that have kind of gone out of favor. It can be for you know number of reasons, but usually it's just administration costs. And there's some other things that coming out of the turn of the century and scandals with Enron and things like that. So an over allocation of, a, of one stock and companies are really trying to be uh, more cognizant uh, and trying to help their employees not become over allocated to the company stock. And we'll, you know, we call that the Enron effect. But with the ESPP, employee stock purchase plans, this really is the allowance that an employee can purchase stock at a discounted price, usually through payroll deductions and the discounts, uh, the way they work can happen at different ways. It might be, you know, you get the opportunity to purchase stock every quarter with a 15% discount off of the price at the beginning of the quarter or something like that. Interestingly enough, I had mentioned earlier about the incentive stock option holding periods and the two-year holding period that many people aren't aware of, employee stock purchase plans work similarly. There is a two-year holding period from the date of the option to purchase the shares at the discounted rate, and comparing that to the 12-year holding period, do you get long-term capital gains tax? I'm doing the quick broad brush that, you know, consulting with a tax advisor certainly is in the card if you have these and are, are unfamiliar with tax treatment. So clearly stock options are the more complicated of these vehicles. There's kind of the part of being granted it, and then there's the exercise part. And there's a few different ways to exercise some options. Do you want to go through those different ways? Most people approach their stock options just like a savings account, if you will, right? Except with a few extra logistics involved of exercising and selling shares. That is typical that people in that situation are using cashless exercise strategies. And that's really just you know working with the broker, the administrator of the option program and telling them you want to exercise and sell your grants. So what they do is they, they literally sell the shares. So if you have a thousand shares granted to you with a strike price or an exercise price of $10, and today the share price is 20, they'll go out and they'll sell your thousand shares for 20 bucks a share. So you have $20,000, but you're not going to collect $20,000. You're going to collect substantially less than that in this example, because they're going to take $10 a share times 1,000, which is your exercise price. So right off the top, 20,000 becomes 10,000. And then you have the withholding taxes. And depending on what those rates are, and if you fully paid Social Security, and then you add on the Medicare, your $10,000 of cash 
uh, is now you know down to maybe seven thousand dollars or something. So that's cashless. That's a basic, simple, easy thing to do. However, there are two other main types of exercises. One just being cash. You can really transfer, wire, write a check, and exercise shares to hold them. Why would you do this? Well, versus the cashless, most people in that strategy are waiting for that particular price that they want to sell at, and then they're willing to incur the tax ramifications because, again, that's done based on exercise. Let's say you are waiting, 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 and you're bumping up against your expiration period, but you still have high hopes for the stock. You know, let's say take our prior example, you have a thousand shares at 10 bucks a share exercise price, but now maybe the stock's trading at 12. And while that's still a nice 20% gain, maybe you feel that there's good things on the horizon for the company and you know it's probably going to be going to $20. So in that case, people would exercise at the $10 and, and write the check or wire the money for $10,000. And then they'll be sitting there with a thousand shares. But again, what do we have to deal with right at the time of exercise? You have to deal with withholding taxes and FICA and Medicare. So this is one of those scenarios where most brokers or administrators will say, well, the exercise is $10,000, yes, but your taxes are another 3,000. So either wire us $13,000 or wire us 10,000 and we'll withhold shares from the 1,000 shares. And so you may end up with say, you know, 700 shares or something like that in total. Now, when you do that, Again, like I said, the, the, that is a taxable event, but you can hold the shares then from that point and sell whenever you know the price hits the price you would like to sell them at. And let's say it does go to $20 after 18 months. Well, you've held them now for a year and you can you can pay the tax on the gain from from that point all the way to the you know from $12 exercise point the price it was at to 20, you pay long-term capital gains on that. So it's important to understand that there's a lot of details here in how the taxes are calculated, your cost basis is calculated. I'm doing quick, broad brush as to how this works, but you know, you can do that with cash. The other interesting strategy, let's say tight on cash and you do have investments, but you don't want to liquidate them and you do already own some company stock, you can actually use a strategy called a stock swap. And this is where you trade in shares that you already own of the company stock, it's gotta be the same company, and exercise your shares. So your shares that you already own have value, okay? Let's go back to our scenario, right? That let's say you own 500 shares of stock and the stock price is 20. You can turn in your 500 shares to exercise your thousand share grant with a strike price of 10. Those are of equal value. Now you still gotta cover the withholding taxes and whatnot, but that's just a basic example. And what you'll end up with is you'll end up with a thousand shares. So you're giving 500 back and collecting a thousand. So it's just another way of exercise. And some companies used to provide some additional benefit for doing a stock swap, like what they call a reload option, but that's for another podcast on, on equity compensation. And not many companies do that anymore. Those are the primary exercise strategies. Again, cashless. Usually people are just doing cashless because at the price point they're looking to sell at. And there's no need to exercise early if they have a good sense that the price will hit where they want it to be within that 10-year grant period. This is a great example of a reason to work with an advisor, deciding when it makes sense to choose these different options for you specifically, depending on where you are or the company you work at and your feelings for the future, et cetera. Absolutely. When we look at it from being advisors to, to many busy executives who are in these types of programs, I've talked a lot about 
taxation already. And that is more complicated than I'm covering in this discussion, certainly. But the other thing you have to look at is asset allocation, right? This is investment. This is, these are shares of stock, and that needs to be a consideration. Now, some people look at it and say, okay, how much do I own of my company stock? And that is a little bit short-sighted, right? Because you also have to look at total exposure to the company in general. Remember, your salary is based on that company. You have equity compensation. So there's two forms of compensation. You might have pension. You might live in a community that this company has a strong economic support of, and therefore maybe housing prices and quality of schools. And, and so you really kind of have to step back and take it beyond just the equity compensation standpoint. And when we're looking at asset allocation, obviously we have to be a little more lenient, right? So the, this, the rule of thumb is don't own any more than 5% in any one stock or else you start to develop single stock risk in your portfolio. We have to obviously be more lenient than that, even if we are just looking at the equity compensation compared to the rest of the investable assets, because executives get into situations that you know, these are being granted every year. You know, the price may not cooperate where they want it to be. The other thing that some higher level executives have to deal with are blackout periods where they're not allowed to trade or transact in the stock. So you can see where the exposure can really pile up faster than you can liquidate it. So asset allocation does have to play a role, certainly, uh, in addition to taxation. I just like to add for those growth focused firms that maybe are using these equity compensation in lieu of salary, we're recording this at the beginning of November 2021, Zillow just laid off 25% of their work staff. So there is a risk of forfeiture that needs to remain present, especially when you were mentioning vesting periods earlier. I've seen sometimes people see the total value and decide that that's part of their portfolio now. But even if you very much plan to stay with the company, maybe things change and the company decides to part with you or a spinoff happens or life gets in the way of even the best of plans. So it's important to really evaluate what you really have versus what you might have in the future. That's a great point, Andrew, because you, know, you mentioned a couple of companies, and I mentioned one earlier with Enron. And again, in the Enron situation, not everybody had equity compensation necessarily in the terms that we're talking about it, but some, if not all, had exposure in their 401k, whether they were able to purchase it or they're being matched in company stock. So when you talk about looking at the whole picture and the risks that lie within, this adds certainly a layer of compensation and benefits, but it needs the whole amount of risk needs to be considered. Every place you might have the equity and, and what else is included in that risk picture. So there's a couple different definitions to make stock options more favorable. It's going to sound a little technical, but it's called an A3B option. Do you want to walk us through some of the mechanics of that? Yeah, absolutely. There are two carve-outs in the tax code. One is 83B and the other is 10B51. And I know it sounds like a maybe a droid character from Star Wars that we're talking about, but we're really not. The 83B election is for those receiving restricted stock grants. We're not talking stock options. We're talking restricted stock grants. Primarily, you know, this is used actually more in the private equity space than in the publicly traded space. The reason is, is because it's an election to tax your grants 
at the time of grant versus waiting for the delayed tax impact for when they vest. And why is this more used in private equity, especially firms that are thinking an IPO at some point in the future? You file that election. Now, you have a very short time period. I think you have to file this election a post-grant, and you know, there's a form that needs to be completed, and, and it needs to be sent to IRS. So this is not something that you can just decide at the time of filing your tax return that yeah, I got restricted shares last year. Yeah, I think I'll do an 83B election. No, you have 30 days and it is official forms being sent to various authorities. But that is the election to tax your grants at the time of the grant versus waiting. And in the world of private equity, think about the potential value of shares at the time of grant could be little to zero value, right? At the time of grant, especially the startups. But with high hopes, you file that election and let's assume for a moment that the value of those shares is zero. Well, then you pay zero tax, right? You've, you've made the election. I want to tax my grants today, but the value of the shares are zero. Now, let's say it's a company like uh, Airbnb that is trading at 200 bucks a share and you have paid no tax. Then what happens is upon sale, there can be additional long-term capital gains taxation upon that. So again, this is another area where you want to be working with a tax advisor on how to file it and exactly how that taxation is going to work. The other number and letter code, the 10B51, this is a pre-agreed upon sales agreement. So where does this come into play? Well, I had mentioned earlier about higher level executives and management that are subject to blackout periods. What does that mean? Well, there are periods during the year where information may be out to the management team that is not yet public. It could be for acquisitions or divestitures, or it could just be quarterly earnings where they are not allowed to trade or transact. Now I say trade or transact because they cannot buy, sell, gift, transfer the shares. So that, that means charitable giving through appreciated stock that can't be done during these blackout periods. So if you think about that, if it, even if it's just around earning periods, that's four times a year where there's a significant blackout period. With a company that's maybe growing or participating in a lot of M&A, there could be far more blackout periods. And the 10B51 allows uh, an executive to construct a sales plan based on date, price, number of shares. And it, these are very strict. That says I'm going to sell X number of shares on certain dates. Okay, it's very formulaic. So it is announcing in advance what is going to happen. And again, those go on file with the SEC and with the broker and so on. And those need to be strictly adhered to, but it allows you to get around the blackout periods. And it can include, you know, whether it's you hold shares already or you're going to exercise and sell stock options or whatnot. So it does work for all of those equity types that we were talking about or equity comp types but it, it allows that, that predetermination so that you can avoid being shut out for a period of time. It allows you to, to continue to trade along a schedule. Did you have any last words for our, our audience, Jason? If you have received these types of benefits, congratulations. They can provide a great deal of benefit to you, but I would make sure that you are understanding or working with an advisor to understand the tax impact and exactly how to utilize these and maximize the benefits, you know, because there can be surprises or there can be benefits that you may be giving up and you just don't know it. This is one of our more complicated podcasts because I know that there was a lot of it was technical. And if anyone in our audience is unsure about how some of these choices impact them or their situation, please email 
your questions to info at jgua.com or reach out to us through social media or our website. And thank you to all of our listeners. Until next time, everyone, stay smart.